Hi guys, my name's Evan. I'm the pastor at Rimrock Downtown. It's awesome to see you guys. So a couple things before we hop into the Sermon on the Mount, which is a six or seven month series that we started two weeks ago. First thing, I want to take some time to thank Dee Hayes, Angie Rowland, and Kara Rowland. They're not in here. They just left with all of the children because for the last, I don't know, two or three months, every single week they've been back there with those kids. We're talking 20 to 30 kids, and they're not just watching them, they're teaching them the Bible, and they do it really well. So if you see them, I don't even know if you know what they look like. If you want to have an idea of what they look like, just go look at the older people, a little bit taller than the kids that are back there. But please take some time to acknowledge what they're doing. It's amazing. And the other reason I tell you that, Jana uh, Shankel sent me a verse yesterday. If you wouldn't mind putting that up, Ross, Galatians. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith or within our church. Children are so often forgotten about within the church community. Just something that we're glad that somebody else is watching our kids so that way we can come in here and do this, which is true. But we have the opportunity week in, week out to spend time pouring into the lives of younger individuals. And from what I've found being back there, it's not just a one-way street. It's amazing what you can get from those kids as well. So just know that you have that opportunity. There's a sign-up sheet right as you walk into the kids' area. Put your name down if you feel called. The second thing that I want to talk about, we've been on a building hunt, a new building hunt, for months now. And we've narrowed it down to two potential options. As we find out more details from this spot, potentially buying here and another one we just looked at last week, We'll let you know more information, but I just want to let you know we're going to get a bigger space. It's exciting, right? More room for our kids, potentially more room in the sanctuary. I, I could care less about that than it is for the kids. I like this energy. I like how small our community is. But please, if it comes to your mind, pray that God would give us favor and also direction because we are a community. We do this together. I know there's certain of us that have been put into a position of leadership, and so we're kind of directing this, but man, this is something that, we, that I want us all to do together. And so when we narrow it down, we'll present the options, we'll go walk around the building, we'll do all these things together. Great. Before we hop in to Sermon on the Mount, I just need to pray to kind of get me focused on where my mind should be. God, you are my creator. You sustain my life I have today because of you. And so I want to worship you. Allow the next 45 minutes to just give you glory. Spirit, speak to us individually. Give us what we need for the day. Amen. Awesome. So I was trained to be a teacher. Spent five years teaching middle school and high school. And so whenever I'm approaching teaching, and no matter the, what the setting is, I'm always thinking of comprehension. And lecture is such a terrible way in which people comprehend. It's like a 5 or 10% comprehension rate when it comes to just listening to people. And so that's where the beauty of your Bible comes in, taking notes, all those type of things. But I say this 
to encourage you to walk away with one thing tonight. That's it. I've got an amazing amount of stuff out of this for me because I've spent the last, whatever, 10 hours this week studying it. But you're just going to hear me talk for a half an hour. And so try to walk away with one thing, one thing to ponder. And if you enter this time with that desire, I promise you the Spirit will give you something. And if He puts something into your mind or even deeper within you, ignore me and start listening to Him. Whatever He's focusing you in on, just go there because He is a source of truth. And he wants to lead you into that truth. Okay, finally, Sermon on the Mount. So we started this series two weeks ago, and we're slowly walking through it. Um, And when we slowly walk through any portion of the Bible, the beauty is we can get so much more out of it. And so we're just going verse by verse until we get to the bigger section. So for the next six to eight weeks, when we're going through the the Beatitudes or the Blessings, we're just going to break it down and look at a single verse. To give us a little context of what's going on, we've all heard of the Sermon on the Mount, but to give you a little context, at the height of Jesus' fame and popularity as a healer, he pulls away from the crowds and ascends a mountain in order to teach. His disciples, says specifically his disciples, the ones who are interested in more than just Jesus' showmanship and his ability to entertain through doing the impossible, they follow him and are sitting around with the desire to learn and apply. That's part of the definition of a disciple, to learn and then apply what they have learned. Now, right off the bat with Jesus's teaching, he goes countercultural. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means destitute or of little value. And these people are going to be a part of God's kingdom. We looked at that last week. His second statement, what we're focusing in on tonight, is just as countercultural because of how illogical it is. So Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now the beauty of going slow, it gives us the opportunity to break down these verses and find out what they're saying. So by looking at the Greek mourn, it means manifest grief, so severe that it cannot be hid. Manifest grief so severe that it cannot be hid. Give you an example of another time it's used. Mark 16, 10. End of Mark, Jesus has died. He just rose from the grave. Now after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. So think about the state that his disciples were in after Jesus was crucified. That's what it means to mourn. When Jesus refers to those who mourn, he's not referring to a small or trivial hardship of this life, like too many cold days in February. He's speaking of the type of hardship that physically brings a person to his knees, the ones that tear us up and consume our minds and our emotions. Have any of you experienced this type of mourning? the type of heartache that brings tears you can't stop and a hollow feeling that you cannot fill. Unfortunately, due to the nature of life, this is a feeling that all of us will experience. We live in a world that is broken, but we have been created with a desire for wholeness. 
pain and loss and death are knit into the very fabrics of this world, yet we, humanity, long for a life void of these things. At the very core of who we are, we desire to experience the perfection of our creator. So, we come, so when we come face to face with the natural byproducts of this broken world, it has the ability to break us. You know, it's somewhat hard for me to say, but the reality is someday you will mourn. It comes in many different forms, physically. Think about sickness, injury, mentally and emotionally, depression, fear, anxiety, relationally, bickering, bitterness, betrayal, loss. You know, the longer that I've lived, the more I've been taught that pain and loss and death are a natural part of this life and are inescapable. But Jesus does not stop there. Again, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, comfort in the Greek of the consolation or comfort given not in words, but by the experience of a happier lot, it's equivalent to refresh. One more time. Of the consolation or comfort given not in words, but by the experience of a happier lot, equivalent to refresh. Now, this is not the, oh, there, there sort of comfort. He's not saying that when we experience heart-wrenching pain that someone will drop off a Hallmark card with a cute little animal telling us to hang in there. Jesus is stating that for those who experience the deepest forms of sorrow, they will, not maybe, they will experience a refreshing of the mind and the emotions. Refresh means to regain strength and energy. Now this is where we get illogical and countercultural. How can someone who is in this level of emotional pain due to the natural consequences of living in a broken world experience something that's equivalent to being refreshed? Simple. Because the creator of everything breaks into their world of sorrow and brings them emotional and mental strength beyond explanation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul puts it this way. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that way we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It says comfort four different times in there, five times. You guys catch this. The Father of mercy and the God of comfort who comforts in all our afflictions. It's a statement of totality. Every single form of affliction. He will bring that refreshment that we so desperately need. Now it does not state, and you got to hear this, it does not state that God will remove our afflictions, make our lives perfect without problems. But it states that he will comfort Refresh us in every hardship that we face, regardless of what form it takes. Now, I have found that it's so easy to skim over passages like this, assuming that it's a simple, grandiose-style statement that's not based in reality. But if you start to examine the evidence, 
you begin to see the nature of these types of statements. I want to share two different stories with you. One from 2,800 years ago, another one that's happened over the last three years. So we'll start with Elijah. So Elijah takes place in 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, 19. It's kind of like the highlight of his ministry, and we'll end up in chapter 19 here. But let me give you a little context of Elijah. He has been called to be a prophet, which means he's going into a wicked nation in order to inform them of God's instructions on how they should be living. And he also gets a chance to do some incredible Incredibly miraculous things. He prays that it should not rain. For three and a half years, there's an utter drought. Then he has a standoff with the prophets of Baal, like 400 plus, where they each are supposed to erect altars. The first God to rain fire down shows that he wins, basically. Elijah gets to see his altar devoured by fire and then the slaughter of all of these other prophets. He then falls down on his knees, prays seven times for rain, and a small cloud appears. Suddenly, rain is pouring down. And then he gets his supernatural ability to run as fast as Flash, and he gets ahead of the King Ahab's chariot. Right? Just this incredible experience. But then something shifts. Queen Jezebel who was the one that brought in this worship to Baal and all that kind of stuff, she finds out what Elijah did and she said, I want his head. If he's not dead by today, right, then all things are going to fall apart. When Elijah hears about this, he journeys off. But he himself, so he leaves his companions, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O oh Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. So regardless of the mountaintops that he's gone through, he finds himself in a state of inconsolable grief. He has gone from the mountaintop, literally, right, with the different prophets, to the valley of despair. He's now hiding in the woods, filled with suicidal thoughts. He has just been so faithful to God and boldly carried out his plans, but now is a wanted man who the most powerful woman in the land wants dead. His worry of the vengeful power of Queen Jezebel has driven him to despair. I think it's important to see that no matter who we are or how obedient we are to God, we will all still experience the brokenness of this world. All right, the second story. I don't like telling stories about myself, but I couldn't convince my wife to let me tell a story of her. And then in order to talk about God comforting, only I know if I was comforted, right? And so I got to tell you a little bit about myself. So almost three years ago, I fell 30 plus feet down a cliff and suffered a severe brain injury. Due to my head bouncing off of solid rock, when they did an MRI, there were dark spots in my frontal and temporal lobes, which signifies dead spots. Now, the frontal lobe is what makes us all human. It's what sets us apart from the rest of creation. It allows us to reason, to think deeply, philosophically, so many other things that make us human. The temporal lobe is what creates and controls our language and memory. So for me, life after the fall has been quite different. Going from the ability to think deeply about life and a genuine love for language to living in a constant stupor, 
having to take naps every single day, and constantly struggling to remember commonplace words and names. It often pushed me to the state of mourning. But for both Elijah and myself, God did not leave us alone in the midst of the natural consequences of a broken world. Instead, he stepped in to bring us comfort. Let's go back to Elijah's story. We're going to read 1 Kings 19, 5 through 9. Let's see how it continues. So he asked God to kill him. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. Otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. So Elijah lays down in utter despair, void of all desire to live. God then sends his angel, otherwise translated as his messenger, to feed Elijah. Now, I think part of this may have been to provide immediate form of comfort. You guys ever heard of the term comfort food? Right, ice cream, chocolate, brownies, right, things like that. What he ate allowed him to walk over 100 miles through barren desert during a 40-day trek. So this means this wasn't just like a superfood. This was like a supernatural form of food. Now, whatever that cake had in it had to bring life back to Elijah in that moment. Anybody ever go into that, that state, that dark place, as my wife calls it, when you don't eat enough and you feel everything shutting down and then you get a shot of protein or chocolate or whatever and it just like boosts your emotion. So I think God desired to do that for him in that moment. But according to verse 7, the deeper reason behind God giving Elijah this food was so that he could go to Horeb, the Mount of God. Another name for Mount Horeb is this Mount Sinai. You guys have heard of that, right? Where Moses went face to face with God for 40 days in order to receive the law. Let's see how this all rolls out. He's on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb with God. So the angel, I'm guessing, he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting the mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazazel as king over Aram. You shall also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elijah, son of Shephat, of Abel, Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazazel, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, 
all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now there's so much in here. This is a sermon, a set of sermons in and of itself. But what I want us to see is what God is doing for Elisha. God reached out to Elisha when he was in utter despair so that he could pull him away from everything else so that he could bring him comfort. He does this in two ways. First, emotionally and then logically. Imagine what, they would, what it would be like emotionally to stand out on a mountain because the creator of everything was about to pass by. Take a moment, try to imagine that, right? Impossible. First, there is a tremendous wind. We know what wind's like here. Then an earthquake, then a blazing fire, and then sheer, utter silence. During this time, Elijah had to have completely forgotten all that was running through his mind. But the Lord doesn't stop with just an emotional high. He then speaks truth into the source of Elijah's fear. In verse 15 and on, he lays out his plan for dismantling King Ahab and Queen Jezebel's wicked regime. He then assures Elijah that he's not the only one left, that there are 7,000 other Israelites that hold firm to their belief and faith in Yahweh. In these statements, he assures Elisha that he is in control and that wickedness will not win the day. He also lets him know that he is not alone in this battle, that there are thousands of others standing alongside him. And over this 40-day period, we see God do exactly what he promised that he will do, bring comfort in affliction. He breaks into Elisha's despair so that he could be refreshed, regain physical, mental, emotional energy and strength. He doesn't engage with, just, with this broken man just to make him feel better in the moment. He uses various techniques to allow Elisha to be holistically and long-lastingly ref- refreshed. I don't even know if long-lastingly is even a word. Now, if you keep reading in 1 Kings, you will see that Elijah continues to live the life of a prophet, boldly telling people what God has commanded him, even though Queen Jezebel is still on the throne. It's incredible. All right. God did and continues to to do the same thing for me. In the midst of my despair and feelings of hopelessness, he has always in various forms brought me comfort. Two of the biggest ways that he refreshed me is through people and physical healing. From day one, God has used people to carry me through times which if I was on my own, I would have simply given up. We are designed to live in community so that way God can bring us support and encouragement through others. You know, also do the incredible way in which God designed our bodies, specifically our brain's ability to heal I'm currently in a place mentally that I never believed I would be in. And just like Elijah, God has spoken various truths into my moments of deep mourning. This is a big one that I want us to focus in on, this idea of him speaking truth. Let me give you three examples of how he's done this for me. A couple weeks after my accident, while sitting on a couch in my room in a brain rehab center, God brought a thought into my scrambled mind. Today is a gift, 
and there is purpose for the day. This simple statement has redefined my view of life. It is through this filter that this filter that God is in complete control and has me alive for specific reasons that I have been able to handle some of the worst days of my life. Another example, even though my brain is healed in miraculous ways, I still experience times when the bottom drops out and I feel like I've either run a marathon, which I've never done, or drank a bottle of tequila the night before, which I have done, right? <laughs> you guys kind of understand what I'm talking about, right? It's hard to even open your eyes, hard to even think clearly. During one of these times, we had a worship night right here. And God brought me major comfort through the line, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Through this truth, God freed me from the fear that I would always live a subdued life and reminded me that I am a son of the almighty maker of heaven and earth and that his good will will be accomplished. Last one. Earlier this week, I got crazy and hung out with some friends. We watched House Hunters. It was wild, right? We ate some Qdoba. I was there for like two hours. Kids were around. It was just, it's hard to even tell you everything that happened. For some reason, that night, I don't even remember driving home. The next morning, my brain felt like I got hit by a freight train. But in the early morning hours, God put a line from a song in my mind. I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. It kept repeating over and over. And so I finally went and searched it, played the song. This song and its truth broke through my despair and reminded me that God is in total control and has a purpose for that day. You know, there's one line that says, my flesh may fail, but my God, he never will. For both me and Elijah, God's words of truth, ones that pointed to his power and his sovereignty are what pulled us out of the pit of despair. Because of the ways in which God has directly intervened in my brokenness, I have been comforted during the hardest times of my life. And honestly, due to what God has been teaching me through this affliction, I am grateful that it has happened. Now, the reason I told you these two stories, Elijah and mine, is so that you can see examples of God remaining faithful to his promise. That he is a God of comfort who will comfort us in every affliction. This is not blind optimism. Based on story after story throughout human history, it is evident that God is the way that David described him in Psalms 18.30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who, those who take refuge in him. Because of this, because of who God is and the promises that he has for us. In Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Jesus states that we will be blessed when we mourn. Now, blessed can be defined as fortunate. A person experiencing some positive circumstance, even enviable. Now, I believe that Jesus is speaking out of the understanding that everyone who lives in this broken world will experience pain and loss. 
But instead of experiencing the natural consequences of pain and loss, such as despair, hopelessness, they will instead be refreshed, given supernatural comfort that will give them strength and energy to keep living. Now, this may seem illogical. I don't know how many of you have experienced the type of comfort that I just explained. I'm guessing a lot of you. But it is not rational. How, when we go through major heartaches, how during these times of suffering can we be refreshed? But just because it doesn't fit into our perceptions of what is possible does not mean it won't happen. Because it does occur, a person becomes truly blessed or fortunate or enviable. Experiencing God's comfort in the midst of mourning is the only thing that can transform brokenness and destruction into a time of growth. But just like we've been talking about, this is not a logical form of progression. One does not naturally go from heartache to peace. Rather, we go from heartache to despair, to hopelessness, to medication. The only way that we end up in the blessed or the fortunate position is when we go to God. This is what Elijah did. By letting go of his own logic and listening to God, his mind and emotions were transformed and his life was restored. I strongly encourage you to do this now. Do not wait to go to God when your world is shattered. The way in which you live before you suffer is the same way in which you will suffer. Let me say that again. The way in which you live before you suffer will be the same way in which you handle your suffering. Go to God now. Become his disciple. Be willing to pull away from the crowds to still your mind and your heart before him with the intention of listening and applying his teachings. Recognize who he is and who you are. The fact that he is infinite, all-powerful, full of wisdom, and that you are finite and flawed. That God's desire is to lead you into the best life imaginable. If you do this now, when things are good, when the storms of life rage, which they will, you will find a peace that transcends all understanding. You know, we're going to close tonight with communion. The idea of communion is a physical symbol of Jesus' body and his blood. The idea that he allowed his body to be broken, that's the bread and his blood to be poured out. That's the blood for the redemption of humanity. Now, there's so many different things that a person can get from the communion. While you're taking communion, while you're thinking about it, I kind of want to point you to a, a verse. It's a verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 61. And the cool thing about this, Jesus quotes this verse in Luke 4 when he's in the temple. 
the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. We're going to leave this up here. As you spend that time thinking and praying about what Jesus did for you, think about the way in which his sacrifice and then the spirit of God that we receive when we call upon his name, the ways in which that can bring you comfort in every form of affliction you will ever face. Jesus, God himself, has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to set us free from fear, from despair, from the bondage that afflictions can bring, and to bring us praise, oils of gladness. It is here waiting for us. All we got to do is come to Him.